and welcome to the very 109th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Today's episode is an absolute bumper treasure trove. It's an extra big episode for an extra big baby. Well done. You've deserved it. Gaga goo goo. Let's have a tickle behind your ears. Congratulations. Yes, we have got for you Root Underworld. Tom, resident absolute lover of Root, and Quinn's resident reviewer of Root, are going to be talking about that. Isn't that going to be interesting? We'll come back to that in a second. I'm going to be talking about Frosthaven a lot later in the podcast, which is going to be interesting. I've played it for two and a half, three hours with the actual designer. I'm going to let you know what my thoughts are about what I've played so far of what is arguably the most hyped game in the world right now. What else have we got today on the podcast, Quince? We have got uh, some brief chats about some absolute classics. If you've missed us talking about Terra Mystica or Hansa Teutonica before. In fact, if those pairings of words are just like a sequence of syllables and you have no idea what I'm talking about, Great, sit tight, because they're two of the greatest board games ever made, and we'll be chatting a little bit about them. And finally, I'm going to wrap up this podcast by talking about a game called Mr. Cabbagehead's Garden, which is exactly as charming as it sounds. And also, it's uh, my opportunity to talk a bit about the world of one player, that's right, one player tabletop games that you can print at your house for free or get an online service to do it, because I've been having a lot of fun with those games. So one of the things I've been playing recently is the Root Underworld expansion on Tabletop Simulator because I've been kind of unable to get it in the real world because I missed out on the Kickstarter uh, and was lazy. And only now am I playing with the lovely moles and the crows that are featured in this Underworld expansion you finally time. got your, your little grubby finally hands got... all over those moles you pulled them out of the dirt i'm so happy for you tom i put them in my game this is the thing though is that uh previously with root uh, i homemade the riverfolk expansion because i couldn't uh find it anywhere when it came out so i made little clay otters and put all the rules on note cards like the sad person i am wait it's you, not you, you, sad. you made them that's cool you made you made actual little miniatures you I made, made them out of clay i made them myself maybe i'll post one of them maybe one of them will be in the uh in the screen in the uh, thumbnail for this podcast i think that's a lovely thing to Just include in the thumbnail for this podcast clay otter um, did you bake them in your oven I, i'm no. sorry i'm getting really into the clay just, just made them out of air dry clay and then put some paint on them Oh, like Fimo. Yeah, yeah, like like little Fimo otters. And then I drew like a moustache on one. He's like the head honcho. And then like I used thick kind of cardboard to print all the like rules on. It was great. I'm but into it. It's not quite a real physical expansion. And neither is this because I played it digitally. Oh, wow. Um, Should we? Do you want to give people a little rundown of what <laughs> Root is before we uh, lose ourselves in its grimy underworld? That is a very good idea. Uh, Root is an asymmetrical uh, kind of war game, territory control game uh, from Cole Worley. Uh, it's about four woodland factions duking it out to have control over their woodland home. The selling point, the unique selling point of Root is that it has four completely unique factions. So the Vagabond is one solo adventurer and the Cats is like a big army um, kind of like like a more traditional 4X game. And then you've got the Birds who have a parliament that will rise and fall and so on and so forth. And the expansion adds two new factions to Root, uh, the Moles and the Crows, as well as a couple of new boards and a new deck and new Vagabonds, which is cool. I was um, not expecting the the new maps to look so exciting as well. Right. See, that was the thing is that I was getting excited about having the new factions in Root, and then when they talked about new boards, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" I'm like, my hype is through the roof because I think one of the things that you mentioned in uh, your review of Root 
was that one of the ideal states the game could get in is just to be able to pit different factions against one another in a kind of like strange game design cauldron of yeah <laughs> yeah the, like, the what's gonna, to, how's this gonna work well the way to summarize my review i think is like i just enjoyed root more when no one knew what was going on when there yeah. wasn't the established game of like okay listen somebody needs to go and beat the hell out of the woodland alliance because otherwise they're gonna win and it's gonna be a foregone conclusion right yeah. exactly I, I think it's funny because that's that's the, the 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 magic source that I love about when Cosmic Encounter really shines when you end up having a game with everyone who understands it, and then you have four different alien races that come out that that interact with one another in a bizarre way, and then you just find yourself laughing because nobody really understands what's going on and how it's going to shake out. Uh, but before we get back to Tom, uh, Tom's because I'm really interested in what you have to say about the Underworld expansion, Tom, because you are I, you have a completely different opinion on route to me. You got obsessed with this game, right? Yes, we. Um, it was I watched the Shut Up and Sit Down review and was like, <laughs> oh my god, I don't know if I want this. I don't know. You know, it was a a real toss up. But then I bought it, and hey, I I think it's a game that I feel has been made for me to some extent. I think it's a really it suits my tastes in a way that. Uh, I find really exciting because I think that whereas you found it sort of perhaps tiresome when the game became a kind of a calculated thing towards the end where it's like, oh, someone's got a bash the wooden alliance, blah, blah, blah. When I got sort of my most into it was when you're unpicking the balance of each of the factions and kind of almost designing it as a player, if that makes sense. Oh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, like like you said, the new um, Underworld expansions are adding new flavors to the pot, new mechanics to toy around with and to look at like how different factions will interact with each other and so on and so forth. Um, so the two new factions in the game are the Crows and the Moles. Uh, the Moles are kind of a stand-in. They're similar to the Cats in that they have this... <laughs> I realize that I sound like an absolute <laughs> insane person for people who don't play Root. But the Moles are a faction that have a kind of strong military presence and they expand over the board. But I think they're a great stand-in for the Cats because they have more unique gameplay going for them while still maintaining that idea of a sort of big military economy-style thing. Because the moles, when you build certain structures for them and when you spread across the board, you'll be hiring ministers to your cabinet. And these ministers will give you special abilities that you can trigger on every single turn. And these will sometimes just give you uh, different actions, but some of them will be your main ways of scoring points. So one of them, like the Minister of Mud, will score points for how much <laughs> territory you control and so on and so forth. But what I really like about this is that the order in which you hire those ministers means that there's almost builds, like MOBA-style builds you can have for the molds. Like in, you know, Dota 2 or League of Legends or something, you might build your character in a different way. You've got the same four abilities, but you'll level them up in a different order. And the molds have that same sort of idea in that you've got, this, you've got the same deck of cards every time, but each time you can hire different ministers in a different order to change the way that you're playing to the board state, which I think is super interesting. Yeah. Um, and not only that, they also have some other unique mechanics. They have a burrow that sits off the board and they can tunnel up anywhere onto the board and spring up um, like surprise moles. Uh, and yeah, I think that the moles are a really good addition to the game because they take the place of the cats whilst providing a more interesting kind of... They're more rich, if that makes sense. To play. I think it, it speaks volumes of how much root is not for me that when everyone goes, oh, the moles replace the cats because then they're, they're a similar sort of real-time strategy kind of faction. But then mm. my head goes, well, can we have the cats versus the moles and just play a normal game? <laughs> just a nice standard game of root. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it would be interesting though, to, you know, it's, see, and then to me, it's interesting 
it would, would be interesting to watch that play out because, of course, the moles have got more flexibility, but maybe they're a little bit weaker because they can't feel as many troops. So it's like it's it's like watching, you know, it's like some of those uh, battle simulator games that you get on, you know, on Steam and stuff, which are just you press play and you just watch two armies fight each other, which I obviously isn't like, hold on, I'm really making roots sound terrible here. (laughs) It is a little bit like, you know, there's so many variables in the way that people play certain factions and the styles that come out, how they use those set mechanics in a way that's exciting. Um, And, you know, the person that was playing the moles for us was doing a strategy that was seemed completely at odds with how they're meant to be played and that he was just building everywhere and the buildings, when you knock them down, lose the moles. Um, you lose your ministers. That's the main way you can knock down the moles is by making them lose their cabinet by destroying their buildings. But this guy was just building them everywhere he possibly could. But because he had such might from that, no one dared challenge him. So he carried the game away. Wow. Um, which is really interesting. And then the flip side to that. So the other faction uh, in the Underworld expansion is the Crows. Um, and the Crows are, I think, unique in a similar way to how the Riverfolk were unique in. So the, um, the Riverfolk company were in the previous expansion in the the river folk uh, are an otter faction and they change the game so much because they are you're basically playing a salesman if you're playing the otters and your whole you have to dictate the pace and the tension of the game by directing the players to do what you want by buying your cards so you're sort of this horrible mercenary profiteering etc um and the crows do something similar that they completely change the state of the game and the way that players think about it because they have this mechanic where they put down tokens that give them points uh, and various different benefits. But if you can guess what those tokens are while they're face down, they just get wiped from the board. So now you've got this psychological guessing game where these there are these little tiny purple mines all oh, across the field. so good. Right? It's so clever. And each of those, uh, when you flip those tokens, they have various different effects. Um, and some of them are just sort of, you know, they get you points or they get you income of cards and so on and so forth. But some of them, like the snare, prevents people from moving out of a clearing. So you can do some really clever plays where you just sort of stifle movement in certain areas of the board and get them locked down. And you've got other ones one of them, when it's flipped or removed, summons a load of crows like it's an ambush and they appear in all the surrounding clearings. And they've got, there's this great guessing game of trying to psychologically unpick the crow player so you can get to the bottom of what they're doing, um, which adds a lovely little layer. And I think the crows, our second game, they won that game by just sort of being ridiculously sneaky and deceptive and always having exactly what you wouldn't think would be in a clearing at any given time. Um, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, we only managed to play a game with the standard autumn board of the new factions because da-da, it's tabletop simulator and it's sometimes real janky. We tried to load in one of the new boards and it just hovered all the pieces like a few feet above the table for them so they couldn't play the game, uh, <laughs> which isn't the problem you should have with the actual Root Underworld expansion if you bought it in real life. But hey, who knows? I was um, cracking up listening to Board Game Garage talk about how they were playing a game on Tabletopia and managed to get their cards physically stuck in the, <laughs> in table. the table. I seem to remember <laughs> they were talking about how not only did they get cards stuck in the table, but they sort of seemingly managed to they managed to be the exact right cards that were stuck in the table at exactly the <laughs> right time. <laughs> Likely excuse. Again, wow. not an excuse you can use in real life. It's a unique to tabletop digital tabletop but the so the new maps we didn't get to look at but i think they again they're new sort of toys to add to the box that is kind of roots crazy like landscape of different mechanics you've got the lake map which has 
Uh, it's just a circle of clearings. Uh, if you've played Root Standard, you'll know that the map is kind of an interconnected mess of these different clearings. And the, the lake just makes it a, a closed loop. But in the middle, you have a raft that if you rule that raft, you can ping over to any clearing that's attached to the lake. So it adds this sort of this kind of choke point that everyone wants to control. And similarly to that, the mountain map, which is the other new addition, adds a single mountain space so right in the middle that's worth a point at the end of every turn. Each route out of the mountain is a landslide the Vagabond has to clear instead of ruins. So the Vagabond is physically opening up new opportunities for the other players. Mm. So all of this is just getting me excited to play with all these crazy possibilities and chuck different factions against each other. Um, there's also a whole new deck of cards that comes with it as well. Yeah, this which... is the this is the thing that I think flies under the radar, but is it might determine the degree to which I really want to play Root again. Yeah, I think that the new deck is... Um, I, it's it's hard to tell off because we only played it twice and it's hard to tell off a couple of plays quite how much the, and only one of those was, was with the new deck and it's hard to tell quite how much the new deck changes the game but I can certainly say that some of the cards in there are really interesting and but swingier perhaps more cosmic encountery in their crazy powerful effects which adds more scope for storytelling but maybe less for kind of predicting strategy perhaps. I think I think this was it this is it's almost a rebuttal to the end point in my review of that Root presents itself as a war game, whereas I think it succeeds more as a toy box and a storytelling game. Sure. And I believe those cards are trying to pull it in that direction. It's trying to say, okay, rather than, you know, creating this like safe set of tools for everyone to use, it's going to be swingier, it's going to be wackier, and it's going to make the game harder to predict. Yes, absolutely. Like one of them is the, uh, there's this card called like Coffin Makers, which adds any, every single time a unit dies, instead of putting it back into the supply, you put it on the Coffin Makers card. And then when it gets to that player's turn, you swipe off all of the tokens that were on the Coffin Makers card and they score a point for every two of them or three of oh, them. Oh, it's Loki from Blood Rage. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> that, I mean, that that completely transforms just about anything. Like if if any faction has that, all of your arguments for we've got to go beat up this such and such kind of go out the window. Yeah, they completely change. Like it, it alters the way that the game is played so dramatically that, yeah, you're completely right. It's more of a toy box and a storytelling engine than it is this kind of competitive sort of tournament-style war game. There was some interesting stuff as well that when Root uh, came out that there were loads of people calling for it to have tournament rules. And I, I seem to remember, maybe I'm misremembering this, but there was something of a resistance from the design team saying that, like, no, it's not. It was almost something they didn't envision the game to be played as a, a kind of robust tournament game, and it kind of got added slowly over the years. Um, so I think that it depends on your approach, but of course I am looking at Root and I'm seeing it as that, but some people see it the other way, I guess. Well, it's, I um, think a lot of people who love games want you know tournament rules. They want to take a game really seriously, but certainly yeah. from my experience of Netrunner, um, you, there's kind of no unringing that bell. Because once a game has tournament rules, once people start taking it seriously, once people just really want to win and they start grinding out play after play after play, then rapidly you discover in a game as asymmetric as Root or Netrunner, oh, this faction is just better. And that has knock-on effects for the people who play casually as well. You know, If we find out from the tournament scene because they suddenly have to release errata because the birds are too powerful then everyone playing casually knows that the birds are too powerful. You know there's, what I mean? Yeah, there's like a load of statistics on the different win rates for the different factions. And it's now kind of a meta in our group that we don't really play with a Vagabond because we don't enjoy it that much, but also because we know the Vagabond has a considerably higher win rate than any other faction. 
So there's that weird push and pull of like, do we want to include the Vagabond in our game because it adds a whole new element of story and because my partner really likes playing the Vagabond and now she's banned? Um, <laughs> or, or do we include do we include it for storytelling or do we remove it for balance? And Root's kind of that constant push and pull where I get what you mean in that there's definitely a sense of the game never truly being completely satisfying because that urge to win sits underneath your urge to tell a good story at any given time. Mm. Um, but my framing of the game, I always describe it to people, is it, it's kind of like Robot Wars. It's pitting things against each other and analyzing the results <laughs> afterwards. Oh, what a great comparison. But yeah, I think the Root Underworld expansion adds a lot to Root, and I think it's I'm going to want to grab a physical copy uh, when it's available um, because... I think that, yeah, Roots, this, it's just such a wonderful game to show to people. And I think that the, the problem is that I'm getting slowly better at it. So the people I can show it to kind of decreases because as you get better, you just win against people that are new to it, which seems mm. very unfair. Like, here's this new game. Uh, I'm going to trash you at it. But yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great time. I would truly, if you're a fan of Root, the Root Underworld expansion is going to extend the things you like. It's going to be more of the same but also, well, more of the same, but more different, if that makes sense. You're getting more of the same things you liked. You're getting more factions, you're getting more boards, you're getting more excitement. But if you didn't like Root, it's not going to change your mind. Like buying the Underworld expansion isn't going to completely reverse your opinions of the game. It's still a toy box. It's still this crazy kind of asymmetric nonsense piece. But yeah, that's what I think about the Root Underworld expansion. <laughs> Neat. Should we do move on to Terra Mystica? Yes. Terra uh, Mystica, mystical Terra. Do you want to lead off Terra? Yeah, sure. Terra. <laughs> Matt Lee's leading from Terra. <laughs> <laughs> you will be destroyed by the power of Terra Mystica, a board game that came out a long, long time ago, which lets you play as so many different factions. Now, Terramiska is a real treat that I was introduced to a few years ago by Quince. And it's colorful. It has this wonderfully 70s, 60s style sci-fi magic to it of weird little goblin-y things and dark-looking wizards. But really, it's a game of terraforming a planet or a place. Hence, Terra, Terra Mystica, because you're terraforming with magic. And as in all traditional magic, if you are, for example, halflings, then you have to live in places that are brown and earthy. Whereas if you're dwarves, you have to live in mountains. And if you're chaos magicians, you have to live in the red badlands. So I think there are, must be uh, six or seven different types of terrain in Terra Mystica. And you're playing a game on these different hexes, all of which have a different terrain type. And the game really is trying to expand out, put little buildings on a map, beautiful little wooden buildings, um, to get you more resources for the next turn so you can spend those resources to make more buildings and spread out. And all the while, carefully using the power of terraforming to translate one type of place into another type of place so that you can live there. Because basically the vast majority of the races, as far as I know, can only exist on one type of thing. It may be that all of them can only exist on one type. I just haven't looked exactly at all of the different powers in the game, and I wouldn't be surprised if in the expansion or something there's... Because effectively, there's not a huge amount of thematic flavor to the game, but there's about maybe 12, I think, in the base game, different um, factions you can play as. 
and they all have a couple of different things about them. Like they maybe have a special power, maybe they have a special setup, maybe they have a special limitation, uh, combinations of things. They're, they're, they're top buildings that you can place on the map will give them slightly different bonuses. And they're all kind of balanced slightly differently in terms of what it costs them to do different things within the game. And it's just a really lovely uh, area control Euro, really, of, of moving magic around between these three bowls in a way which is comedic at the best of times and spending resources <laughs> to, to transform a, a, a desert into a lake. And there's a lovely element as well. The one universal thing which applies to all of the different factions is that you have this wheel in front of you which is uh shows you basically the circle of terraforming of like what how how hard it is to go from this to this basically and it's that's the thing that i really like about the game the thing that really jumps off of being quite immediately pleasing is being like well of course getting something from being an ocean to being a desert that's a lot of work right that's not going to happen in an afternoon and so really looking at the map and constantly trying to assess like what is the best value for terraforming like do i want to get that even though it's going to be a nightmare just because it's going to block the dwarves from being able to do their mad thing so it's it's a wonderfully non-aggressive area control game and i've been really getting into it again on board game arena uh, which has all of the expansions that i'm going to dip into one of which has frost giants and Maybe dragons. My head wants to say dragons. It's probably not. But <laughs> let's say dragons. And then uh, another one which adds basically each different uh, faction in the game gets a special tile that they can place on the map. So they can actually overlay something with a, a special unique tile to that faction that does something really cool, which I think will just add enough complexity to push that game into the zone of being like, <gasps> and I've been playing a lot of Terramisco with, with strangers, which has been interesting. Have you? There's clearly a meta. Like, it's fascinating. Like, you... I've seen people choosing Chaos Magicians and then putting their starting piece in the same location every time. There's clearly there's clearly a really strong meta in terms of like there is actually a rebalanced version of the game on Board Game Arena, which accounts for <laughs> basically gives people different quantities of starting points and resources because it it implicitly understands that the meta has decided that some of the factions are just more powerful than others. Yes, I remember. The only one I know is that mermaids are either way too powerful or rubbish. But mermaids, <laughs> mermaids are at one end of the spectrum either way. And I can't tell if chaos magicians are really strong or if people just like them because they're chaos magicians. Uh, uh, but I th- yeah, I think they're, they're known to be powerful. I, it's funny because you were just talking about Root and I almost brought this up, Tom. But I mm. think the Terra Mystic and Competitive scene has something that could work in Root. I could be getting this wrong, but I think the way it works is you can have whatever faction you want, but you bid victory points. So it's like, I'll be the mermaids and I'll lose four. I'll be the mermaids oh, and I'll lose five. And that work, that would work with Root as well. It's like, I'll be the vagabond and start with five less victory points, negative yeah. five. It's true. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I've been really getting into it and uh, it's popped up in the news again last week where we had a thing whereby we don't really know what's going on uh, with all of that stuff, so we're not going to really speculate on it. But it seems like Asmodee's having a funny time, and uh, it, lots of studios that have been previously a part of Asmodee that got bought up as part of the uh, the big Asmodee snuffle up, where they kind of collected every possible uh, board game publishing developer in the industry. They're now allowing them to go back, allowing them out to the fields again <laughs> to be free. Don't really know what's going on with that, but obviously we had um, Forgotten Waters. Uh, made by Isaac Vega and Plaid Hat was the last game that was being released 
uh, through Asmodee. And I think now from now on, they're becoming independent again and going to do their own things. And also, yeah, we've just heard this week, last week, that um, Terra Mystica is now going to be published by Capstone Games. Uh, yes, uh, uh, and a different company in Europe, I think, yeah. The, ma- the main reason we mentioned this, I think, well, the main reason I mentioned this is because it was announced a little while before that Capstone were going to be publishing Terra Mystica, which caused some people to be a bit confused because it was owned by other people. But Capstone have been doing a wonderful job of bringing back some classic games in really lovely production form. So we don't know exactly what the deal is with that. It may be that it just comes out and it's just a republishing that's exactly the same. Oh, it will be, um, I believe, yeah. But I'm fine with that because honestly... I love the art in that, and I love the little wooden pieces. So yeah, just get, having some more availability of Terra Mystica would be great, because having played it a bunch, I love it now. I think it's brilliant. I think it's... Uh, there's a full shut-up-and-sit-down review of Terra Mystica on there our is. YouTube channel, um, but I think the easy way to summarize Terra Mystica or why I like it now is it's just a game that seems to get absolutely everything right. You know, it's a game about building, but everything you build is like a satisfying, you know, wooden piece that goes on the board, and it's important, and it changes everything for everybody. And also, I was thinking about this when we played it, because we played this, the three of us, um, as well. Mm. Um, it's a game with randomized setup, and lots of Euro games do this. You know, they'll, it'll say, oh, in this game, you'll score for this and this or in this round you know you'll be able to get this bonus for being a fire cultist or whatever that's a real thing i didn't make it up (laughs) um but in terra mystica those little randomized bits of setup it's not just fluff to kind of nudge the game so it's a bit different it radically changes how you play same as the factions it's not like oh i have this one special power if you're playing the chaos magicians then you're going to play in a very different way than you would otherwise absolutely absolutely and also like the thing i love about it is that not only is everything you do kind of fun, whether or not you're spending magical shovels to turn deserts into the, the mountains, you're also having to make decisions all the time. None of it's very clean. Like you don't, you don't, you very rarely get turns where you go, "Yeah, that was really great." There's always a slight. Every every decision is slightly tricky because of the fact that, like, yeah, cool, I can upgrade this basic little house into a bigger trading house, but then that means that the basic little house goes back on my player yes, sheet. This, this really defines the game, I think. Yeah, like you, you, every time you take anything off your player sheet, you're going to get a new reward in the upkeep. So you're going to get more money or more mana or more workers. But then every time you upgrade a building, the one before goes back on your player sheet, which means yes, you got this new upgrade. You get a bit more money this next round, but you're going to get less of that. And trying to plan ahead for that, both in terms of what you need to put on the map to continue what you're doing, but also accepting the effect that's going to have on your economy is rough sometimes and interesting. And actually, the the fascinating thing I keep discovering when I'm playing it online is I get so overexcited about just filling up the map with my stuff that I put down all of my basic buildings on the map. And then I'm kind of stuck because I can't put any more (laughs) out there. And I can't put any more out there until I upgrade some of the basic ones, but I can't upgrade them because I don't have the economy and I can't get the economy because I haven't uh, it kind of it's, cracks it's, me up, you know, because you, you, maybe you pour all the all of your resources into building this enormous wizard's tower and it grants you your faction special ability and it's going to be magic all over the land. It's like, what used to be on that space? Uh, the bank. Okay. Do we have any money anymore? No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like, oh, no. So it, it's such a continually satisfying little puzzle that every time you play it, you think, okay. And there's no easy decision because because of the fact that it's an area control game, it's constantly saying to you, like, do you want to upgrade your infrastructure and make sure that your economy is not wobbly in two or three turns? Or 
should you grab those two spaces next to you? Because if you don't, then the person next to you might grab them first and you could block this person from doing that. And it's just that there's no good decision there. You just, you just go with a decision and work it out later. Um, um, Matt, and that, that's where, yeah. Have you been able to play it with like large player counts? Because I think, I, I'm not sure I've ever played Terra Mystica with a full, what is it? Is it six players? It plays with six? I don't I, know. I don't know. Um, my brain says five, but I've got no it's, idea. No, then it's probably five. I've been, I've been playing with four mostly and it does honestly on board game arena it really does whittle along like and you can play it um i've played the one game of it live which was kind of annoying um because you just all it takes is one person to be really stretching that five minutes to take a turn and you're like oh, i want to play terra mystica hurry up um and i've been enjoying it more playing it asynchronously so just playing it okay so me and tom played a two-player game asynchronously i got I've- absolutely <laughs> crunched <laughs> I got decimated in that game. I think yeah. I make sure that my, my first play out the gate of any, in, in any game of Terra Mystica, my first play straight out of the gate is just to completely botch my economy. <laughs> just try, like, Fine I, move. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> we, we're so hard on fantasy themes at Shut Up and Sit Down. Um, so I'm sure there are some designers or publishers listening to this being like, why do you like Terra Mystica's ugly fantasy setting? You know, And I think the way to summarize it is, Matt and I will give a free pass to any fantasy setting so long as the art looks like it was drawn before we were born. Like <laughs> at that point, it becomes like classic and kind of stylish and a bit retro and, you know, like original blue box D&D. That stuff looks cool. But, you know, as soon as you get into the 80s and 90s and noughties, then it just, then that's when we start getting grumpier and grumpier. Would you say yeah, that's I fair, think, Matt? I, I think that that is kind of fair. And I guess it's maybe just down to personal saturation you know like we just yeah. we've, we've uh, particularly in the era of of things like the video games from 2000 to 2012 i think we just we just absolutely got waterboarded with with what we now think of as being trad fantasy um, yeah. but i also think that it's just it's simply because of the fact that you look back and when fantasy was more of a niche nerdy thing and nerdy in the the sense that you know it was something that people did everyone else thought it was dumb and awful rather than nerdy as being like what it is now of being just like an absolute multi-billion industry yeah um and everyone's nerdy and everyone still acts as if it's something to be ashamed of but it obviously isn't um (laughs) it's really weird um i think that it was in its nascent state it was something that was splintering off into different ways and that's what I love about going back to weird settings like Glorantha from King of Dragon Pass yeah. is that you look at it and it was this odd thing whereby everyone was sort of doing weird stuff with it. And then one of those things, which was the kind of Gary Gygax vision of it became the thing like, you know, and then that combined with Lord of the Rings to kind of create this world of Warcraft style aesthetic, which then just became the dominant one. And I think that's why I like going back to the 60s and the 70s, because you do get, and actually there's a lot of similarities between the art style in Terra Mystica and the art in the Steve Jackson style, like sorcery games of this slightly ugly, grotty, weird, lumpy uh, vision of of fantasy. That yeah, for, is, for is me different. it's like, and I've talked about my love of Conan before, but for me it has to be rough around the edges. It has to be like, has to kind of not make sense. Like I love the first Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movie because, you know, you can see the costumes are kind of cheap and you can see that the actors are completely committing to it anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but yeah, I think rough is, is how I like my fantasy. 
that well are we going to leave that conversation there is that going to yes. okay you know what I think I think so screw I think you guys it. let's talk about Hansa Teutonica uh, <clears throat> so and this is another game uh, another Euro game that we have been able to uh, play as a group digitally uh, and I don't mind telling you I was quite I was su- pleasantly surprised by digital games uh, a couple of weeks into quarantine now really pretty tired of them but yeah yeah okay uh so at least hands Teutonica, which is one of the things we played is great we talked about it on the podcast a while back um and it's i believe it got a big box expansion last year it's getting a reprint this year so it is relevant and we are so excited to give it a full video review treatment because it's so good uh it's also got the driest theme ever hands Teutonica, you're playing merchants in germany in medieval times um and cool. when you're right i i can i can sell them that's what i do yeah um, and what you've got is a map, which is loads of routes between different towns and cities. And on your turn, mostly what you're doing is taking your little traders, which are little cubes, and your merchants, which are more portentous circular disks, and placing them on routes, trying to connect routes between towns. And when you've filled up a route with all of your color, you remove all of those pieces and put one of those pieces into the, one of the towns on either side. And then you've got a bit of control over that town and the routes cleared up for other people to place things on. You can also, if you connect the routes between certain towns which offer bonuses, permanently improve your ability to place traders or get new traders or improving your score multiplier for linking up towns across Germany. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, and then fundamentally, the mechanic that powers the game is that if you're on a route, if one of your cubes is there, and let's say Tom wants to remove that cube and displace it, that's fine. But A, it costs Tom extra cubes to do it. And B, your cube then kind of, it's like sort of, I don't know, like squashing a cell and then the cell splits and it becomes two cells because that trader of yours that got removed becomes two traders and then you place it on two routes nearby or one route nearby. So if you can get in people's way, you multiply like a disease uh, is probably the way that I'd summarize Hansa. But Matt and I talked about this, you know, easily like 10, 15 podcasts ago. Uh, So have a bit more of a discussion about it this time i think what what did you go well, tom you're you and you what do you make of good old hands tom, at- you're new you boy <laughs> i haven't i haven't seen you around here you boy what do you think of oh, oh, boy boy what do you Take think? this 10 shillings and bring me back the biggest board game you could find. I, I found Hans of Teutonica. It's this, It's the German one. Is it, will this do? Let me Yo, yes. Bob Cratchit. You're oh. fired. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I've, I've properly broken the streams now. It's absolutely fine. Uh, Hans of Teutonica. I like couldn't stop thinking about Hans of Teutonica after we played it. Like It's one of those games where the systems kind of bury into your brain like horrible... Uh, worms made of merchants that's the worst analogy <laughs> wow viewed. but it, it's really like i think that it's you said quins when we were playing it that it's just there's something kind of timeless and simple but also like very very complex about the design in that it's there's no cards it's just cubes and a board yeah like real cubes it's, down it's a real delight when it turns out when publishers couldn't like print do you guys know this cards were one of the last things publishers were able to print like you could we could do boards we could do paper we could do manuals we could do tokens but cards actually mass manufacturing custom cards just was hard and it was expensive so then you get games like hansa which does all this amazing stuff with just cubes and a board and I think that the the fact that it is just cubes in a board means that it's my favorite kind of Euro game, which is one that just is ruthless, like full of ruthless player interaction. Like the entire time you're like bumping shoulders with uh, the other players continuously. Because as like in a three player game, the route that gets you an extra action, which is probably like the hottest route in the game, because you immediately want to go from two actions to three actions per turn. Oh yeah. Is, is 
like there's only one way to get that. And immediately you're like putting on your first turn, you put two of your cubes down as two of your actions. And the next person looks at it and goes, well, I'll boot one of yours and place one of mine for my two actions. And you're just <laughs> constantly jostling for this one route. And I think that that turn order, like the initial turn order in that game shapes it so much because it forces, if you don't want to bump shoulders with people, it forces you to go to different parts of the map and pick up a different starting ability. So it's almost like this is the thing that you're going to be good at from now on is decided in that very first turn, if that makes sense. Like yeah, it produces I, an asymmetry straight away. And not only does it define the game, it defines for me how I'm going to be envious because every time I've played Hansa, <laughs> which I think is three times now, I end up, because there are five abilities you can get, you know, pot multipliers, getting your merchants, getting more actions, being able to get more traders like from your discard pile, essentially. And a fifth one, I... Oh, Privilege. privilege privileges, yeah. Privileges. Deter- privileges. Deter- uh, deter- well, did we all... Just reference strong bad email there. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I was just copying you, but gosh, strong bad was the best. Uh, yeah, so um, privileges determines uh, what spaces and cities you can actually take, and uh, hopefully that lets you sort of take control of cities from other players. Anyway, what I was saying is because there's five of those abilities, and you're probably not going to be able to get one every time I play hands out, I end up looking at someone else like Tom in our game. I was looking at you being like, Tom gets four actions a turn for the whole game, and I get two actions a turn. How is that fair? <laughs> And Matt got uh, merchants. Matt managed to unlock like three or four merchants which sit on roots and are essentially like horribly expensive roadblocks. <laughs> and I was so envious. Yeah, and I didn't do very well, but I was, I was going for the, the Snorlax uh, play, which for those of you not familiar, Snorlax is an extremely large Pokemon who is famous for falling asleep on bridges mainly and then having to be woken up. Snorlax is a hero magic for our whistle. times. We did have to wake you up in between turns. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. Giant Snorlax merchant, and it was the fact that every time you wanted to get rid of one of my merchants, which was usually blocking something quite important for someone else, you had to then give me like basically two free goes, and it was wonderful. I was just, I, but then it kind of didn't work for me because eventually my Snorlaxes all fell asleep in the wrong place, and no one wanted to move them, and that was it. That's it. Hansa is a game. Uh, in a sentence, I think Hansa is the game of, is this still worth it? You know, it's like, okay, you want to connect these two cities and get a, a cool point multiplier. Right. Is that going to be worth it if you have to dislodge one cube? What about two cubes? What about you have to dislodge a cube at a merchant and clever old Quinns has taken control of one of the towns on either end of that route, which means you're going to give Quinns a victory point every time you complete the route. And that, that was kind of, again, really satisfying because you guys got all these cool powers in our game. You were these super-powered Power Ranger German merchants. But I just had a bunch of valuable towns, which meant I had this drip of one victory point every round, which ended up winning it for me. Yeah, it was huge. Absolutely huge. There's so many like divergent strategies within that game as well. Like, like There's so many points at which, like you're saying, it's is this better than this? Or you're weighing up those choices. But there's so many different ways to score points and kind of guide the course of the game that it's like the equivalent of when you have like a phone call with someone or an argument. And then afterwards, you're like in the shower and you're like, <laughs> damn, I should have said that. Oh, that would have been so cool. And it's like after that game, I kept thinking like, man, I should have been using the move action more because that's one of the things you can... You, there's so many, so much. We all should have been plays. using the move action more. Yeah, it's way right? powerful. 
because I was thinking about this idea where you could put two things on a route and then you get those displaced so you get four back and then you move them onto a route and you can pop it straight away and it's like oh the plays you're just thinking about them in your head after you play the game it's just such a tight design but like it's so tight that usually you know like we can play Terra Mystica which of course we all love uh, but then at the end of it we can say like ah you know I should have left more of my trading posts on the board before I upgraded them and that can be factually true Mm. whereas Hansa is a game where you walk away being like ah I should have got this buff but it's like if you got that buff, you would have missed out on something else that might have won you the game. Mm. Like you, you think about Hansa, but you don't, you can't solve even any one bit of it. Like you know, like you can with other sort of lesser games. And it's because you've got that. You just got the, the. I guess the difference is that in my games of Terra Mystica, well, I've only played two, but in the games of Terra Mystica I've played, I've found it that the player interaction is is somewhat limited in the fact that I felt like I can get on with my own thing in one side with not having to worry about much else. I mean, admittedly, only in three player games, but with Hands of Teutonica, the reason that no plan will survive first contact is because your enemies are all around you in every single turn, blocking up routes and being annoying. Like any strategy that you have immediately gets wavered when someone starts putting, you know, cubes on the route that you need that turn and to dislodge them is to give them a point and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. it. Yeah, that's it. It's it's really, really good. Uh we should probably uh move on to the next game only because when in whatever form the hands of reprint comes out we're gonna be talking about it more because mm. uh, we're just so amped really keep on hydrating yourself don't forget about your dreams hydrate your dreams inside all right you're welcome tom Appreciate just the kind of motivational support i like to provide yeah this is going in don't worry Ah, <laughs> we never should have given this guy control of the edit. <laughs> what have we done? I could arguably delete things from the audio files before I provide them, but I'm too lazy. So, a couple of weeks ago, I had the wonderful fortune to play Frosthaven with the game's designer, Isaac Childress. I'm sorry, Matt, was... I, I think you misspoke. Frosthaven, that's the biggest board game in the world right now, and it's not even released. That's impossible. That's... That's true. Liar. But apparently it's possible. Liar. I'm- liar. <laughs> liar. No. Liar. No. Liar. Liar. No. No. They've caught me again. I didn't. What did I you didn't. really play, Matt? I played Tiddlywinks on my own I and then pretended to be Isaac. <laughs> no, it's true. I played it. I played it on Twitch, on Tabletop Simulator. There was an official demo for Frosthaven, which was based on the unofficial mod on on Tabletop Simulator, which is one of the, the very few, actually few handful of games we've talked to developers about who they're, they're happy to have people playing it on, on Tabletop Simulator. We, we said a few podcasts ago that we reached out to developers and lots of developers were like, yeah, of course, if people want to play our games, they can. Lots of developers have said that. Lots of developers and publishers have said, you know, it's a difficult time, whatever. People can do that. They can do that. But, and we're not going to name names because that's unprofessional, we have had a whole bunch of people going, oh, I didn't even know my games were on there. That's not cool, actually. Or, oh, actually, we feel really weird about it. So, mm, yeah, it's a complicated issue. We'll come back to that in our time, keeping out for videos and podcasts in the future. But anyway, I was playing Frosthaven, uh, a game that's not out yet, a game that's gone super nuclear nova on Kickstarter. Kickstarter's probably ended by now. I think it's, it's not ended, and I think it's up to about 7 million yeah, but it live. will have ended by the time the podcast goes live. Oh, I'm still getting used to our time travel. Time travel. What, how, how long has it got now? Oh, let me Don't check. Don't say. Don't say. So the Kickstarter's ended on a, about a, probably on a cool 10 million or so. I, I have no idea. Well, But I got to play it before the Kickstarter ended. 
So the demo on Tabletop Simulator basically gives you a couple of scenarios from the game and a bunch of little puzzles, which are these little things that have been invented to be like, hey, you're in a room with these two bad enemies and this character and this much health. Can you kill them in one turn? Which is a neat little idea. And actually, I kind of think that the Gloomhaven puzzle game as a video game would be a lovely thing. But uh, Gloomhaven video like games. Gloomhaven not, Go rather than yeah, right? Go, right? Yeah, cool. no, that could be neat, but let's not get into that. That's so, referencing the Hitman Go kind of series of games, right? As opposed to Go, the board game. Or Pokemon Go. Or Pokemon Go, yeah. Hitman Go. Oh my God, a Hitman Go where you go out into the world and you find someone and literally <laughs> kill them because the app told you to do it. <laughs> oh dear. Please, Niantic, no. Um, okay, so back to the realm of the board game. This is an interesting sequel. It very much feels like a sequel in the fact that it, it's we played with a couple of the characters that are the starting characters. I played as the flag lady. I think she was called the flag bearer or staff bearer. I don't remember. And it was a necromancer. Isaac was playing a necromancer. And it was fascinating in the fact that in many ways it felt just like playing Gloomhaven, but more complicated and more complicated, I think, in a way which I liked and not in a way which was annoying. So the major difference is there are some some big differences in terms of the part of the game I didn't get to have a look at, which is the kind of the strategic layer outside of the tactical layer, if we're going to look at it as if it's like the video game XCOM. Whereas in Gloomhaven, you've got this cool little map and you're exploring stuff. You're finding new locations. You're sticking them on the map as stickers as new locations you can go to. So every time you're going to play a game of Gloomhaven, you're going to whip that out and you're going to look and you're going to go, where do we want to go? Which of these places do we want to go? Do we want to go to a magical cave? Do we want to go to an evil forest? Do we want to go and free some people from some cages? And in this, you're probably going to be doing some of that as well, but you're also going to have this encampment of Frosthaven. And I got... I'm not ashamed to admit I got quite excited when I realized that the the first mission of the game, the text that intros you to it, you, I realized I'm like, this is the box art. This is the art on the box, which was really nice because it was that thing of I was like, oh, we're running away from these big, horrible Yeti things and hiding in this little place called Frosthaven. And it's like, I looked at the key art on the box and I'm like, this is it. That's awesome. And I found that really evocative in a way of being like, oh, we're running away from this thing. Cool. And I got really into that. And then at the end of the first mission, spoilers, it was sort of going, oh, welcome. This is Frosthaven. Maybe you could hang around and help out a bit. And it's like, this is already tickling another part of my video game brain that I really really like of being like okay between missions you're going to be spending resources to build and upgrade and look after a place which is just so cool now there was there's a very popular video game series called assassin's creed that if you've heard of video games you're probably familiar with or even if you haven't but this my favorite in that series which is frankly very wobbly and i'm not into it much was the second one, which allowed you to build up these villas and look after this little Italian villa and upgrade it all. And and it was just super enticing. And for me, when it's done right, the idea of like, this is a little town and you're going to spend resources to make it better and upgrade it is just, oh, I love it. It just, it, it excites me so much more than is rational. And I mean, the, I, I'm looking at the Kickstarter page now and the thing that makes this like 
it just turbocharged is that, you know, same as you put stickers out on the original map of Gloomhaven, now you have this map of Frosthaven, which is a tattered and destroyed city, but you've got all these no less than five sticker sheets of buildings that you can put on mm-hmm. your map of the town. Yeah, exactly. And that's cool. And also the, the main change that you see in terms of how that interfaces with the actual kind of tactical layer of the game, which is what I really think of as being Gloomhaven, is that when enemies die, they will drop a loot token. And then when you collect that loot token, rather than just getting money, you're going to get a loot card. And it will be it will tell you basically what you get. And you're going to get resources effectively. So it's interesting in the fact that in Gloomhaven, obviously killing enemies and then collecting loot was something you would try and do along the way. But it wasn't that big a deal. And also it was slightly greedy. And there's still going to be an element of slightly greedy in this, I think, because you still might just get money and you're still going to have treasure chests, which will just have treasure in them, presumably. But there, it feels like there's a much more exciting impetus to be like, let's try and collect as much of the loot as we can, because those items are going to allow you to go back and actually create stuff and build stuff and upgrade this town. So that's because anyone who's played Gloomhaven knows that trying to go around and collect as many of the coins as possible when the enemies drop them is often a recipe for disaster. So that that risk-reward, making it a bit more of a cooperative risk-reward in that regard, I think is really interesting. And I've got to be honest, the complexity level of, of the characters, um, it kind of threw me. It, it didn't help that I was playing the game live on Twitch on a stream. And for those of you listening to this now, if you would like to watch it, it's going to be up on YouTube at this point. And it's probably going to be like a two-and-a-half-hour video of me us playing through one camp, one little start a bit but um it was very interesting i really enjoyed just seeing how it worked and i found it fascinating getting to play a game which is effectively in many ways just another version of gloomhaven with the creator because i have all of these ways that i play it and seeing the ways that i house rule things or i treat things and how they gelled or didn't gel with how isaac would play it was really quite interesting do you have any examples well um i was getting a little bit of the ai wrong in terms of how I did the enemy AI. But then we had a conversation about it, and it was quite interesting in the fact that I, even though I knew the rules, and even though he said, oh, this is how it works, I was still like, yeah, but I'm not going to do that when I play. And it was to do with the way that enemies behave with movement. So let's just say if we've got like a shaman enemy and it's going to try and heal range three, one of its allies, it would still, Isaac said, it, within the rules of how enemy movement works, if it has movement, it will move towards melee range of the nearest player character that it could attack, even though it's not going to attack this turn. Whereas I've been playing it, like if it has the capacity to heal someone, then it will move towards the person it can heal and then heal them. Or like if it doesn't need to move to heal a, a, an ally, it won't move, it will just heal and it will stay where it is. Ah, so you've actually Which, been making the AI a little smarter. I have, but when we started talking about it, I was like, yeah, but actually I don't always do this. Like, If it's an enemy which we think of as being smart, like a human or someone who's clearly humanoid, and then yeah, but if it's something that is clearly like a zombie or a skeleton, then we will usually have it move in a way which is kind of more stupid. So I realized I was actually kind of like, I was sort of breaking the rules, sometimes to make it harder, sometimes to make it, well, I thought easier, but apparently just like the way the game is supposed to be. But that was kind of fine. And so there was lots of things like that of realizing that the way I approach the game in some regards is actually exactly the same as how Isaac does and in other ways slightly different. So 
I think it was an interesting addendum, a very long to watch, but something nice to have on the background, maybe of an interesting addendum to the review where we did talk a bit about how it's a game you kind of will fudge a little bit. There's an element of changing the rules slightly to make it work for you. And it doesn't matter if you don't get everything right. Um, which is something that Isaac fully believes in as well, as we found when we talked to him at Shucks last year on the thing, which is again, another video you can watch of me interviewing Isaac about Gloomhaven, etc. What's last the year. search string they'd look for if they wanted to find Ooh, that Oh, I think if you look for Isaac Childress Shucks, then you'll probably find it. I think there's only one video there. Um, but it was when he revealed the new smaller version of the retail version of kind of a mini Gloomhaven, which is supposed to be coming out this year. I don't know, maybe things are going to get pushed back. But I still would say that uh, hopefully if that comes out within a short amount of time, that would be the thing I'd definitely look at if you're interested in this. And because I think the other boxes are such big, big things that unless you are now in lockdown with somebody else who is up for it, in which case, gosh, get it. Try and get a copy <laughs> God, of can Gloomhaven. You imagine, can you imagine so like, you and your Gloomhaven partner being quarantined together? Oh, it'd be so good. It'd be so good. I'm kind. I'm jealous of um, of Tom and the fact that he's kind of locked in a house with people who are willing. So, well, actually, some of them have left now, right, Tom? Yes. You've, you don't have your big crew anymore. <laughs> a considerable number have left, just as we've oh. got a load of games that you could like only play with eight players. <laughs> <laughs> this suddenly happened, but yeah. But I've got a couple of people around who are very willing to play games. They, I mean, I say very willing. It might be because they have not much choice in their <laughs> these days. But I was going um, yeah. to ask on the, on the front of uh, you saying that Gloomhaven, well, Frosthaven, having slightly more complex characters than Gloomhaven, would you mm. say that it's perhaps not a prerequisite, but that Frosthaven's characters are a step up in complexity, that it makes it difficult to approach if you hadn't have played Gloomhaven? Possibly. Um, I think you just find it hard mm. um, in the fact that my character, the shield, not shield, flag lady um <laughs> i'm gonna call her was rad uh she was really cool basically she relied on having summons so she would summon in different characters and one thing i would have liked to see in is like yeah i don't know maybe in the actual game the summon characters will have their own little stands but i would love that especially in this where you have a character who has multiple summons and they all have different kind of characters. And I really hope that, you know, it'd be nice to have some little standees for those different characters because I think that will really bring it to life. Um, but I could summon in different types of units that would be either somebody who'd be like playing a trumpet and like cheering everyone on and basically be a classic <laughs> bard, making everyone do damage and somebody who was a bit shieldy. And then one of them, uh, their only real special ability was I was allowed to move them. I was allowed to choose where they move because usually when you have allies in Gloomhaven, you don't control their movement. It's it's automated like AI movement. And the key thing about this is all of my characters' attacks involved shapes. And I really struggled with this. And I don't know if it was just me being an idiot or me being on a stream, but I really struggled to get myself into the right position for it because it required that I have like, okay, if you are here and your ally is here, in reference to where the enemies are. So in one of them, it was like a pincer attack. So it's like, if you have an enemy in between you and your ally on exactly the other side, and that can be another player or it could be one of your summons, then you can do this attack. If you don't, you can't do this attack. So that's quite a tricky prerequisite. You have to have you and an ally in the correct position in order to pull off an attack. And they're really powerful attacks, but obviously you can't always do them for various reasons. So I struggled to get myself into the right position sometimes to be able to pull it off. And I realized a little too late, which is 
probably the same thing that would happen in my first game of it for real. I'd be yeah. like, oh, I'm supposed to be summoning in these characters. And the character who I thought was rubbish because all I can do with them is move them myself is amazing because I can actually specifically use them to get into the right position. And then I had a, an ability which was allowed me to move a couple of allies several spaces. And I kept using that as a means of amplifying the attacks of Isaac, who was the necromancer, to be like, look, I can push you forward, then you can run forward and do something. And I realized actually the purpose of those cards mainly was that if I didn't, then I had no way to move most of my like characters. <laughs> so I was summoning these characters and then they just stand in a room with a trumpet, just playing sure. increasingly quietly as, as we get further <laughs> and further away from the dungeon. So you have to use those cards to keep pushing them forward with you. Otherwise they're not going to come. And so that led to some interesting decisions of being like, oh, I, you know, we should run into the next room now, but I need to rest before I can get my card back that will allow me to tell this person to, to move. <laughs> so we have to just like abandon them forever. Or maybe I come back for them as if like, it gives you the idea that this like um, standard bearer character is just the, like has the worst employees in the world <laughs> being like, they just have to go back and say, look, Kevin, can you please follow me? Like, like oh, when I, I really need when I right go now. into battle, can you follow me? Like, <laughs> is that, is that so hard? Uh, whilst the necromancer had a lot of risk reward with hurting themselves to summon in more skeletons. And it ostensibly should have been an amazing combo because we kept summoning in stuff all the time. And then, uh, I should have been that I had allies in every position I possibly needed to be pulling off my attacks, but uh, we were pretty unlucky. I think if you watch it back, I think uh, uh, luck wasn't really on our side. But no, I'm I'm excited about it. I still feel like, as I posted in the news when we revealed, um, when we talked not revealed, when we talked about the fact that Frosthaven was on Kickstarter, I still said that you know, um, if you're looking at this Kickstarter now and you've not played Gloomhaven. Um, you can buy Gloomhaven as part of this Kickstarter, and I'd recommend doing that more than I would getting Frosthaven necessarily, mm. just because, um, you know, it's Frosthaven might be amazing. It might be the when it comes out, I get my hands on it, I can play it, we can put a review out there when we're like, you know what, this is just the best. But it might be that it's just not as good as Gloomhaven. And right now, I can tell you that Gloomhaven is incredible. Yeah. Um, particularly when played with apps, etc., to kind of take away a lot of the admin. What and I don't a, know nice what Frosthaven would be right? like. <laughs> and a nice wooden insert yeah um <laughs> which i've been assembling uh incredibly slowly on twitch and is now done and boxed away and has freed up a huge chunk of physical space in my life i mean as um, someone who's kind of interested in gloomhaven you know i i'll i'll sort of create some artificial pushback on you suggesting you know that i get gloomhaven instead of frosthaven right because mm -hmm. i'm looking at the campaign page now Something that's always bugged me about Gloomhaven, as someone who doesn't play the dang thing, is that the hex tiles you use to make levels from are pretty pretty bare bones, pretty not enormously detailed. Mm -hmm. So Frosthaven, on top of having this town building thing that I love, on top of having uh, map tiles and art assets that generally just look a bit more expensive and sort of classy looking, and on you know it it it's it's the more appealing package for me. I, if I'm getting one or the other, then I'm excited to make you know excited to get the more feature rich sequel. Yeah, absolutely. But as we know from from the the medium of video games or films, often it's always the case that sequels have much bigger budgets and much slicker um, packages, and they look more exciting and look like they're going to be better. And then sometimes, somehow, the magic that was there in the original is just gone, and but you can't see that that's going to be the case until you actually physically have it in your hands. And I'm heartbroken by how many games we've received to review over the past few years that have been these huge, beautiful luxurious productions have had so much heart go into them 
And then you end up with a very large box full of very impressive looking components and something that you're not really interested in. Now, I don't think that Frosthaven will be a huge disappointment. I have to be clear on that because having played um, uh, it for a couple of hours, it just feels like more Gloomhaven in a way which I'm completely fine with. Um, But I still would say that at this point, it's like, well, you could... I mean, it's it's kind of moot now because the Kickstarter's ended, etc. But there'll be another Kickstarter for a second wave, I'm sure. So I just think for now, until reviews come out, um, until you know you actually get some reviewers with their hands on it who actually are reviewing it impartially and not doing it as part of the promotion for the campaigns, um, I would just hold off. And especially if you've not had any interest in it, I really still think that the small box that is coming out is going to be the thing to look at, just with the fact that you don't have to set up the maps. It's all part of a book. And you have like four characters, a small box version of it where you can just get your hands on it and you can work out, is it something you want more of? Because honestly, it may be that you just buy that as a small box thing. And then that keeps you busy for six months. You know, it's like, it's, it's a slow, chunky game. And I still don't know how much Gloomhaven I need. Um, well, yeah, none of us, I mean, this is, they're releasing this enormous box, you know, with hundreds and hundreds more hours. I have never met anyone. I have never heard of anyone who has completed all of the Gloomhaven content that exists already. <laughs> oh, I, I know people who've completed the campaign. I know quite a few people who've, who've finished the campaign. Good Lord. But that doesn't mean playing all of the missions. Like you start to realize as you go on, there's a lot of forks in the road where it's like you either do this mission or this mission. But yeah, it's still, even with that, it's really the content of Gloomhaven is the characters. And even if you finish a campaign, you personally will maybe play three or four characters max, I would say. Mm. And so you've still got another, you know, eight or so in the box. That's that you ridiculous. Could have in your it is ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So I don't know. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's a, a great joy to being excited about things. And I think if you have kickstarted Frosthaven, I, I wouldn't worry too much about quality because I think that it's going to be the worst case scenario. It might just be more of the same. But I think Gloomhaven in itself was already so much more of the same in itself. Um, but people still loved it that I think you can't really go too wrong. Um, I just think that, yeah, if you're still on the fence, then it's always wise to avoid the hype train and get on the the boring bicycle of well-worn, solid goodness. I'm going to talk about one more game before we wrap up this cat and put it back in its box. Uh, I'm going to talk about um, a print-and-play game, a one-player print-and-play game I played called Mr. Cabbagehead's Garden. So I released a video that I had a ton of fun with um, a couple of weeks ago, um, which is... Basically, my little guide to print and play one-player games, which uh, are super relevant right now, because even if you don't have money, even if you don't have other players, there's something that you can still get stuck into. And I did, and I was boring everybody in the Slack uh, over the last couple of weeks talking about how excited I found this. You know, um, one of the things I say in the video on all these one-player print and play games, and again, don't worry if you don't have a printer, because you can use online printing services and be mailed an envelope with about. 40 games in. Anyway, at the end of this video, I mentioned offhandedly a couple of games I've been having fun with, like Deep Space D6 and Mr. Cabbage Herd's Garden, but I didn't cover them properly in the video. I said, you know, instead of me talking about these, go and play games yourself. But I will talk about Mr. Cabbage Herd's Garden now on the podcast, because I think it's so, so sweet. So, uh, Matt, Tom, I need you to enter your mind palace right now, because the theme in this game is a marvel, and I want you to imagine it. Imagine you are 
Mr. Cabbagehead. Okay, I am the Sherlock Easy. of vegetables. Easy. Uh, okay, you're Mr. Cabbagehead. Uh, Eudora Brassica, uh, who I think there's a sort of little hint that, you know, a bit of will they, won't they there, is hosting the annual vegetable sort of growing contest. <laughs> Eudora, so, Eudora uh, Brassica. Yeah. Too right, I do. Uh, I yeah. love them. So, Can't you know, eat them though, bad for me. Eudora would be really impressed if someone managed to win the blue ribbon at the vegetable growing contest. That's you. So this is a card game where uh, you're going to work your way through the 45 card deck. Every turn, you deal out three vegetables from the top of the deck. So you might have, you know, beans, lettuce, and more beans or peppers, turnips, rutabagas. Um, and all of these... Uh, have a little number printed on the card as to how many of them there are in the deck. So there's five beans, uh, but there's there might only be three turnips. They also have a point value that you get if you manage to plant multiples of a vegetable next to each other. So let's say turn one of the game, you put out a turnip. There's only three in the deck, but as soon as you get another turnip next to it in your vegetable plot that you're planting, then both of the turnips will score. So one vegetable by itself doesn't give you any points, but as soon as you've got more than one adjacent to each other, then you get uh, bonuses. Also, you're thinking about what you want when uh, the vegetable patch contest actually happens because there's certain things they're looking out for. You can have a promenade of vegetables. You can plant the same vegetable in all four corners of your patch. The judges like that. So there's a few score multipliers uh, that you can get. However, um, you have some nosy neighbors who I've got in front of me. Um, there's uh, Sally uh, Tom Tomatoes. Uh, she's awful. There's Lord Carrotbody, who's hateful. There's Horace Savoy Brassica. <laughs> He's just absolutely terrible. And then the, there's the mayor of Onion Town. The less said about him, the better. There's also some people you can get in the expansion. There's Callahano Corncob, uh, the Right Honourable Pomfrites Esquire, Bernard uh, Butterbean, Duke and Duchess Peapod, the Furwig Radishes. All of these cards are brought to life by some absolutely amazing art. Better art than any print and play game should have. I don't know how this even happened but of people who are like vegetable-human fusions, basically. But the way these uh, play out in the game is that whenever you plant a vegetable, you're going to draw a token from a cup um, showing uh, which, which of these neighbors you're playing with is likely to show up. So, for example, um, if Lord Carrotbody shows up because he likes carrots and wants carrots to shine, if he shows up, he's going to remove the highest-scoring vegetable you have adjacent to a carrot. Oh boy. Yeah, it's it's disastrous. And then at three points during the game, you have to go on holiday because the neighbors are just too much for you. So these on holiday cards come out the deck and then you go away. And then the neighbor who has the most tokens on, so over the course of like the first third of the game, maybe you're putting out all these carrot body tokens. So it gets more and more likely carrot body is going to swing by when you're on holiday. So you're kind of planting your vegetable patch, looking at these tokens, doing a bit of risk reward going, okay, it's probably going to be Duke and Duchess Peapod or Lord Carrot Body who visit when I'm on holiday. And then whoever visits removes a certain kind of vegetable. Um, they all have different sort of patterns. So for example, Sally Tomatoes just takes the highest value vegetable you've got. The mayor of Onion Town will steal an onion. If you've got an onion, you better not have an onion. Um, so you're sort of planting these <laughs> vegetables, trying to get dice, nice score multipliers while knowing like as you get closer and closer to going on holiday, it gets more and more likely certain people are going to come. And if they're coming, then you can try and protect your vegetable plot from them. Like by putting a vegetable you don't want next to a carrot. So carrot body snuffles that up. That's basically, that sort of summarizes the game. Point scoring, card set management with a really, really charming theme. Just kind of a really nice little solitaire thing to fuss with. And I sort of introduce this now, not just because the people listening to this podcast can download it right now, print it and play it for free. Not just, I'm not mentioning it because they should do that because I had a bunch of fun with it, but just as a sort of taste of what I put into this video, because I was so blown away by print and play games. And I realized that while I was pretty hard on solo games in the video I put out a couple of weeks ago, it's because you have to pay for them. 
And if you're used to the sort of royal majesty of like playing games with other people, it's hard to justify spending 20, 30, 40 quid on a solo game. And that that just felt true to me. And it's certainly like I don't enjoy doing a lot of the I mean that that does make that does make sense on a on a on a purely practical, tangible level. I mean, I know Tom especially is probably still kind of in that zone of being like thinking about a game and thinking well i'm going to spend this much money on the game but it's going to provide this many evenings of fun for this many people which yes. is it's like the equivalent of like buying a dvd versus going to the cinema yeah you know it's exactly like we can yeah and so the thing i kept encountering with solo games is that i would try them and be like well i've played this once and i don't necessarily want to do it again which is a terrible proposition for value for money unless you're going to sell these games on however to quote my review directly my uh, misgivings about you know getting your money's worth from one-player games disappear when you spend no money, and so I've just been like, yeah, I won't I bang on about it anymore. But if people are intrigued at the idea of having a great time by yourself and spending no money, uh, they should absolutely check out uh, my video <laughs> on uh, one-player print and play games. Yeah, uh, no, I, absolutely. I really want to. I want to get one of you two to try Bargain Basement Bathosphere. That's the one I'm. I'm like from you talking about it. Super super vaguely last time and the name of it i'm i'm definitely going to try it like it's i want to watch your video and then i want to get in and have a go at that because that one particularly just speaks to me the idea of making a bargain bathosphere is just terrifying (laughs) (laughs) so i'll I'll tell you one thing about um bargain basement bathosphere it's basically a roll and write game but played you know how most roll and write games come with a pad of paper and you can rip off a sheet whenever you want to play yeah Bargain Basement Bathosphere is a one-player legacy game where it does that. It, you print out essentially a sheaf of levels, but every level in the pads that you print out is different. So every level gets more and more complicated and more advanced and rules change. But then interspersed with the levels of you trying to drive your crap Bathosphere to the bottom of the sea, it introduces mini-games. So like in the style of like Gloomhaven or XCOM, it suddenly goes, okay, like after you've done three levels, it goes, okay, by the way, your grandmother just died. I'm sorry, but she left you an aquarium. So <laughs> here, now you have an aquarium where whenever you go down in your bathosphere, you can grab fish and bring them back to the aquarium. And I didn't mention this in the, in the actual full-on video review, but then it introduces, <laughs> after a few levels, a mechanic where you have to save divers. You have to rescue divers while you're down there in the bathosphere, and they're always getting stuck. And the manual has a bunch of fun making fun of them. But then it introduces a <laughs> graveyard for the divers you don't rescue. Oh, my God. And then it introduces a mini game, which is like, well, we need a monument to the divers that have died. Right. But- I, don't, I don't want any more. I yeah. don't want any more. That's enough. Like, I want to I do this. I do this. Yeah, good, That's good, great. good. Do. Um, I would- I've got a couple of things. I've got, I've got the maze of games from uh, Mike Salenker, which I've... Uh, I want to dip into a bit and I've got that. I'm going to try and make some time to sit on a sofa and do, mm, I say nothing, but actually like just use my brain horrendously in a different way, I guess. Yeah, that's it. um, I've been playing, I've been slowly chipping through the maze of games, actually like what doing basically one, maybe two puzzles a night. And there's something lovely about that ritual of kind of, it's kind of like a, a relaxation experience, but the puzzles are really hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's, yeah. Have you got the um so the answer book as well, Tom? Yes, I do. Um, what? Yeah, I, uh, you yeah, do have yeah, answer they're... books. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's actually lovely, right? This is a really neat thing. Like I I'm I haven't properly delved into either yet, obviously. But um, the answer book the, in the story, the Maze of Games, is about these these brother and sister that get lost in this horrible maze. That's I, I haven't started it, so that's yeah. my top line. <laughs> you know that's what? Not um, your bang on. <laughs> yeah, 
But then the answer book is written by the brother and sister. So it's like it's like the, the author of the book is the name of the characters. And it's basically their notes on how they escape the maze of games. That so it's like if you so get lost cool. in it. It's really and it's sweet. it's not written like it's written like as if some bits look like it's like photocopied almost. So it's like it's like handwritten notes and pointing to stuff as if they've like cobbled together this. I mean, I, I just seeing that made me realize, gosh, if this is like the helper book for this book then I, I cannot begin to think how much love has gone into the actual thing. Oh, you know? So I'm, I'm really so excited much, to dive so into it. Love and care. But the thing that the amazing ga- maze of games and lots of the solo print and play stuff I was having fun with have in common that I think is really important is just working with pencils. Mm. It's, it's, the, oh, it's yeah. the difference of like working with pencils and scissors and being sat at like my coffee table as opposed to you know anything that isn't a pencil. Pencils are just like the most mindful instrument, I think. Yeah. It's what I'm kind of not. I was kind of surprised when Roland Wright stuff came to prominence to see all of these games and then being like, oh, well, obviously the best way to do this is wipe clean plastic thing and little like white pens. And it's like, yeah, that there's reasons why you would use those pens. Um, but I, nothing beats pencil and paper. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so good. Um, yeah. And like, if anyone's ever used their copy of like just one or one of those dry erase games a lot, or the Captain Sonar's another one, you know, you get into such trouble as soon as the pens run out. You have to start really researching like what you can get as opposed to, you know, printing out new sheets and getting a pencil. Yeah. Just one get the, yourself uh, a pencil. One of the things pencil. I'm really enjoying about with the maze of games, filling it in with a pencil is that after I finish a puzzle and I know I've finished it and I know I've got it right, I just go over everything in pen. Oh. It serves no <laughs> gameplay purpose, but it makes each page look very aesthetic. That's <laughs> awesome. Because, <laughs> yeah, That's you tentatively cool. fill stuff in in scratchy pencil just because you're like, I have no faith in this being right. And then at the end, you're like, oh, thank God, <laughs> let's go over that again. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, Also, if you are um, currently uh, stuck and spending a lot of time on your own, it's worth pointing out that, yes, now on Twitch, we are streaming every Tuesday and Thursday. If you look on uh, twitch.com forward slash shut up and sit down, you'll be able to see our schedule for the next couple of weeks at least. Hello from the past or the present or the future. I honestly do not know which. We've been playing with time too much on this podcast and things have got confusing. Just wanted to drop in and give the stream schedule here because we tried to do it with the podcast, but things changed. So without further ado, this is the schedule for the stream so that you are in the know. On the 12th, we're playing Lords of Vegas with Mike Salenka. On the 14th, it's Forgotten Waters with Isaac Vega. On the 19th, it's Wingspan with Elizabeth Hargrave. And on the 21st, it will probably just be me and Matt playing some Watergate, chilling out, having a nice time after all those games with the designers. There you go. That's it. That's the stream schedule. Uh, Hopefully we will see some of you there. It's always a good time. Very chill. Very nice. Lovely group of people to play some Bob game with. Uh, enjoy the rest of the podcast. Bye. That about wraps it up for the 109th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And thank you, Matt and Tom, for talking about games together. Thank you for letting for physically me have being a voice. Here. Finally, <laughs> you let this boy have a voice and come to life. Someone like is Pinocchio. giving is a it voice. Like Pinocchio? It is like Pinocchio. Uh, does anything? Does any part of you get bigger when you? Oh.